I've been talking about the atonement, talking about getting started talking about the atonement, and as we're going through this whole, this whole series that I'm, I'm trying to bring forth so that we get what, what is actually happening, what, is, what, was ha- what was in Jesus' mind when he was about to go to the cross. What did the cross represent? How did Jesus see the cross? How did the early church see the cross? And then also looking at now that we've westernized the whole story, what's the difference between our version and the, and the scriptural version? And it's interesting to me as a preacher that how many times we tell stories without actually following the scriptural context of the story we tell. But we take the liberties because it preaches good. And if you can pull off a good sermon, then people seem to give you, let you slide on accuracy just because it was a good sermon. So I don't necessarily agree with that, but I do enjoy a good sermon. So I want to I want to start here that uh, you know as we start well here's a couple questions let me start with some questions. So first, how did the first Christians interpret Jesus' death? What did they see when they just lived through this event? What were they seeing? What were they understanding? You know, what did they say about it? How did they communicate what was actually had happened? You know, what did it mean? And how did they arrive at that view? Because what, you know, we've we've talked about this already, but we have a group of Jewish people who the Messiah comes and everything they're experiencing is framed in the culture that they live in and their Jewish culture. And one of the, when I look at that, uh, how, um, how the Jewish culture has managed to survive through history. It's fascinating to me. It is the hand of God. I, I, I just, I don't have any qualms in saying that. And, it's, and there's a unique thing in that if, if, to, if yesterday we all went to synagogue, the one thing we know is that regardless of the time of day where we live, that our synagogue service is, it will be the same service that has just happened all over the world or will be happening as time rolls across the planet. We'll read the same scriptures. We'll offer the same prayers. Now, the, the homily or the, what, you know, the story that the rabbi, how he tells it is going to be different. But the basis of the story, the scripture of the story, will all be the same. And when we look at the feast, feasts play a huge role for that culture. Well, what is, what's so, uh, what's the power of the feast, whatever they are, Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles, Day of Atonement, whichever the major feasts are, what do they do? It means that annually, we as a people come together wherever we are and we tell the story. 
Now, in the day of Jesus, the temple was there, so we would have gone to the temple. And we would have told the story. And we would know why. And we would have told our children. And we would have told our children's children. Um, it's like we were, last weekend, we, Vanita Southworth had a, uh, her birthday, and we went, some of us went over for that. And the, the interesting thing, when we got ready to eat, the family, the Southworth clan, they sang a uh, blessing that they always sing as a family before they eat. And it was really neat because I'm looking at Vanita, who does not look 80. I was looking at Vanita going, so from the very beginning of this family, this song has been the song that they break bread with. And they all knew it and they all sang it. And it was lovely. It was short. But it's, there, there are things in ritual, there are things in, tra- in tradition that I believe are important. And I think the older I get, the more I appreciate it. When I was a younger man, I really, I think I spent too much time trying to tear all that stuff down because it wasn't relevant for my generation. I don't think that was a wise decision, but uh, we did it nonetheless. So there's this place with tradition. And, I, and so here we have Jesus and He's stepping into the tradition of the Jewish culture. So God is stepping into a culture and tradition that has also changed from when it was first given and instituted. And it's, it's evolved as the Jews have evolved as a people. So there, there, there are certain perspectives that are there. And I think it's important for us the best we can to understand that and to see that. Um, so, what did the early Christians believe about the cross itself? I mean, they saw the cross as an earth-shattering in meaning and implication, something that left the earth a different place. The, we, we, we today can casually talk about the cross. It may, it may or may not be central to all of our thinking. We might have other, other religious ideas that we spend a lot of time pondering, musing about, talking about, and the cross may not be the central place. It may just have become the piece of jewelry that we wear that says, oh, that's, that's a symbol that I'm a Christian. But for the early Christians, this, the cross was not that way. The cross was something that was central to what had happened. And they saw it as this, this thing that just happened, this crucifixion of the God-man has literally changed the planet. And we're witnesses to this change. And how, I mean, again, if we try to put ourselves in, into the time frame, if, if I had been a witness of the day's events, I watched Jesus be arrested. I saw him at different points along the way where he was beaten and he was marred and, he, and all the things that were happening to him. I happened to be in the courtyard when Pilate brings him out and presents him to us. I watched him 
take the journey carrying the cross. I was there at a distance when they drove the spikes in his hands and they drove the spikes in his feet. I, I was present when that cross was pushed up and there was the thump as it settled. I was there when I heard the moans. I was there when I heard him crying out. I was there when I heard him say, it's finished. And I was there when they took a dead man off of a tree and wrapped him up and carried him away and put him in a tomb. I was there. And this much I know. Dead men are dead. They don't show back up an hour later going, well, how'd you like that? They're dead. And what do we do with dead people? We put them out of sight. And we put this one out of sight. I would have saw all that or I would have at least heard the stories from those who did see it. Because in all of Jerusalem, it was the same story being talked about. Which is why on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus comes alongside and, and, and starts asking questions, the two guys are like, where have you been? You don't know what the heck just happened? Right. You know, everybody knew. Everybody was talking about it. There was all the, uh, the intrigue between the ruling religious class, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the collaboration that had gone on between them and a government that we hate and oppresses us at every moment. And yet our religious leaders collaborated together so that this man could be killed. I would have been aware of all of that. And the day after, we would still be talking about it. But the day after, we knew the body is in that grave. But the third day, the third day, the story became a story that's never been heard before. Because the grave is empty. And I don't understand that. How can that be? Dead men are dead. Buried men stay in their graves. The problem is, on the third day, a bunch of other dead people show up. Alive. And they're walking around the city. I mean, I don't, the shock and all of this event had to be huge. Because some smug Pharisee or Sadducee who thought, that'll teach them. We're in charge. And anybody that thinks they're going to be in charge over us, this is what happens. They agreed with the same penalty that the Romans had agreed to in the crucifixion 
which the Jews despised. The, you know, we talked about this weeks ago. The crucifixion was designed to paint a psychological impression on everybody that you don't mess with the government. This is what happens to you. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees who hated that partnered with it and made it possible for an innocent man to take that same punishment. Because what were they saying? Don't challenge the religious structure either. Which is why Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Beware of it. So, third day. Now, the grave is empty. The man that was dead is now being seen by people. And other dead people are walking around talking about the dead man that's alive. I think I can stand pretty strong on Scripture with this when I say the people that came out of the grave, they were the same ones when Jesus went into Hades and took the key as we were singing. When Jesus went in and declared the good news to all who had died. And a few of them, and I don't know if they got to go, oh, sure, I'll go back. Or I don't know if they got to do that. Or Jesus on his way back just went, you, 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 and you, come with me. And they all went like the disciples. All right. And they just went back with him. I, scripture doesn't tell us how that all worked. I'm sure it was good no matter how it worked. But death was defeated. If I was a believer, if I at that moment had seen this whole thing and said, Jesus is the Christ. In that moment, I would be living in this highly charged environment where the world had literally just been turned upside down. There's no going back. You can't undo the story. It gets, if, if you're an enemy of that story, it gets worse every time it's told. Because more people are going, I think he's the Christ. I believe he's the Christ. And you thought the plan would have quieted the one man. But to make matters worse, Holy Spirit shows up and pours out power. And then sends them into the streets. I, 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 Lord, help us that this thing gets right down into our core about how 
amazing and world-changing this event is. It's not just a story in this book called the Bible. It is the literal incarnation of Yahweh himself stepping onto the scene saying, what man, what's impossible for man is not impossible for God. What man was unable and unwilling to do to take the assignment, to be my imagers, to take my kingdom into all the world, to make sure that everybody hears the good news. What man was not able or willing to do, I'll do it myself. And these early Christians were living in that place of, I mean, excitement doesn't even do it justice. I don't even know what word you put there. I mean, it's beyond excited. It's, it's something beyond that. But it was so, so life-changing to them that from that moment on, they realized, you can kill me if you want. I'm not changing my story. Because life, you can't hold me anymore. You can kill me. You killed him. We sang today. If he walked out of that grave, I'm walking too. I'm walking too. Let me model something else about how this kingdom works. The grave doesn't have a victory. Oh, I'll die. But that's just the carrier quits. I'm stepping into glory. Okay. So as we start looking at this place of atonement and as we get ourselves into this, seeing how they saw it. When we speak about the atonement, it's more than a Western view of he died for our sins. That is, a, that is part of it. But as we've kind of taken the, the, the concepts of Plato and drugged them into Christianity, it's, it's kind of diminished the full impact of what the cross means. And we've just brought it down to, uh, you know, he died for my sins. But if we're going to talk about atonement, atonement isn't just that act. Atonement is, it encompasses it all, the resurrection, the ascension, the spirit, the life of faith, the ultimate resurrection from the dead, the renewal of all things. When God came and made atonement, he was setting everything right, not just sin. He's setting everything right. Now, sin plays into all that, of course, and iniquity plays into all that. We've talked about that. And my, my ability to, to move in idolatry plays into all that. But God shows up and says, I'm going to set it right. So from here on, the ability of a man, the ability of a woman to connect with me is going to be direct. And in that directness, not only are you going to be able to connect with me, but I'm actually going to enter into relationship with you that's a relationship that it's tangible, it's growing. I mean, sometimes you know, why, you know, people will say, well, why would God allow this? Why would God allow that? And, 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 and I've said that, and my frustration is like, God, just do it! Yeah. Because it's uncomfortable, it's painful, it's, you know, whatever, whatever my reason is, God, just fix it and fix it now. And things would be, I, we think things would be easier 
if that was the case. I don't think it would be better. Because what, what we as humans, what we move to so quickly is, I need the formula and I need the formula to work because I got other things I want to do. Where God's coming along saying, it's relationship and I want to build a relationship with you and this is an ongoing relationship that is actually an eternal relationship. So what I want with you is to walk with you and have relationship with you. Oh, and don't forget all my benefits. My benefits are there, but benefits flow out of relationship. I have a relationship with my wife, which has benefits. No relationship, no benefits. Kind of the way it works. I like benefits. I love my wife. I like relationship. I mean, after all of our years of marriage, everybody in this room, all of us that are married have been married any length of time whatsoever. And Amanda, I don't know why you thought you needed to jumpstart this process so quickly, but even now you and Joe, you're right in the thick of it. We all know that in relationship, it's an ongoing dynamic up and down thing. There's days we get along well. There's days we don't get along well. There's days we talk to each other. There's days we don't talk to each other. There's days we love the benefits. There's days we ain't talking about benefits. It's, it's all there. It's all there. I don't know what you guys are thinking. I'm just talking benefits. <laughs> Dishes washed, clothes done, you know, benefits. You know what I'm talking about. So God's coming and he's wanting, I mean, if I'm created in his image and my ability to have relationship with you, another human being, takes on a particular form, is it, is it, is it too much of a stretch to go, this is how God created me, but in how he created me, this is part of him. I am a relational person. Yeah. I need relationship in my life. If I don't have relationship, my life suffers and I don't do well. Now, various ones of us have various capacities for how many relationships we can deal with, but we all need relationship. I need that place where the person I'm talking to kind of tilts their head and goes, now, I don't know what you're thinking there. <laughs> and for me, it was a good thought. I'd pondered it. I'd worked through it. I thought it was a good scenario. But I need the people around me that challenges my thinking. I need the people around me that love me enough, that care for me enough, that are going to walk with me day in and day out. And God is coming and said, I've designed you to be relational because I've designed you to have relationship with me. And when we talk about atonement, we have to see it in a relational situation, not just a theological situation. I think I should be able to explain atonement 
but I better know how to live atonement if I'm going to be a Christ follower. And it's taking me my whole life, and I'll continue to do it when this life ends because it's relationship. <laughs> it's also interesting to me that when we look at Western theology, when it talks about atonement, that almost none of it, when you look, when you read writers that are talking about atonement and talking about the theological perspectives of atonement, almost none of them start in the Gospels. Gospel stories, other than there, there's a few, like Mark 10, 45, uh, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Key verse. Right? You know, we'll, we'll use that verse. And of course, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Another key verse. Those are only a few. They immediately jump into the rest of the New Testament and start extracting things and then pull things from the Old Testament and start building their picture of atonement. It's interesting to me that just when they do that, because like, shouldn't, if we're going to talk about atonement, shouldn't it kind of begin end to end? With Jesus? Isn't Messiah the picture of atonement that I should be looking at? And, and in atonement, many of the writers, at least the ones I've read, many of those writers will spend most of their discussion on the topic of sin. It's interesting to me that Jesus says that his death, although it addressed sin, but that his death was a declaration of the kingdom of God, kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven coming to earth. Most atonement theology is I get my sins forgiven, so I go to heaven. Jesus said, my death, my aton- the atonement was about the kingdom of God coming to the earth. Oh, I, I thought it was... We all, what we want to all do is go to heaven. And Jesus is like, I don't know, I was planning on coming to earth. Had kind of different perspective there. Oh. And I think, honestly, if we, if we look through the scriptures, Genesis all the way to Revelation, there's, there's not that many scriptures that give us a like a complete picture of heaven, especially one that we've built in Western theology of what heaven is like. I mean, Revelation, yes, it paints, but even there, the focus is not on heaven. The focus is on the earth. It's what's happening here. The kingdom coming here. God's kingdom expanding here. The powers of darkness being brought down so that the agents of light can abound on the earth. Even there, it's not, you know, the the goal isn't to paint some kind of picture so we all feel better when somebody passes away 
because then we have this whole scenario that we've built. Now, please hear me. Heaven is an incredible place. And I don't even know how incredible it is. I'm positive I'm going there. And I'm positive I'm going to like it. Beyond that, I don't know much more. But I'm positive it's going to be amazing. But as much for as amazing as that is, my responsibility though now is here. For as long as I'm here, I'm to be affecting the earth with the power and the presence of the living God. So that the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and King. It's my assignment, it's your assignment, that we pour our lives out. So, ah, man, 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 man. I don't know, I can talk as fast as Doug. Um, John 7, let's do this, verses 1 through 10. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee, and he would not go about in, in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the, Jew, now the Jews' feast of tabernacle was at hand, and his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to, and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but the world hates me because I testify about it and that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone to the feast, he also went up, but not publicly. There's the, the thing that we have to look at, and we'll, this is kind of just setting the stage for the next time I'm up here. Um, when we look at the day of, when we look at atonement, you would have thought that all the events, the crucifixion, would have taken place on the day of atonement, which was wrapped into uh, Passover. Or it would have happened uh, at tabernacles or one of the other feasts. But Jesus specifically used Passover. So he was painting a picture, and that's this, this discussion here, that's what this is about. The brothers are saying, hey, it's the Feast of Tabernacles. You're the big man in town, so why don't you go up there? Because if you really want to do something, that would be the place to do it, and the time to do it. Why don't you? You know, go, uh, go up for tabernacles. And Jesus said, no, my time has not yet come. Because tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles, was not the historical place that Jesus was going to bring forth the fullness of his messianic um, responsibilities, say it that way. 
because it was going to be on Passover. So what we watch then, the early church quickly takes the feast of Passover and brings that into the cross and starts to define the cross and what happened at the cross through Passover. That's for another day, but that's what this story is leading up to. So in Mark 11, verses 12 uh, and on, On the following day, when they came to Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and then we're going to step into that next story. But... um, I find this interesting. If you do, fig, the first time a fig tree shows up is where? In the garden. And what was it? What purpose did it serve in the garden? It ended up being the covering that Adam and Eve chose to cover themselves from not doing the vocation that they had been called to do which was take the kingdom into all the world. So, and, and I'm, uh, I'm going to take, it might, it might be liberty. I, 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 well, I'm going to give you my view of it, and then you can decide what you want to do with it. So here we have this fig tree growing alongside the road, minding its own business. Jesus comes by, looks at it, it doesn't have fruit, and he curses it. Now, we all know this story, and we'll we'll read the other scriptures later. But later, the next day, when they're coming back out of the city, the tree has withered to its root. So why, why a fig tree? Why not some other fruit? Why did Jesus choose the fig tree? I believe he was making a very distinct statement that this fig tree that at my coming should have been bearing fruit. And yet it's not. I came, I saying being Jesus, I came that this tree should have been bearing fruit and satisfying, but instead all it is is lush with leaves. And I believe he's making a statement because when, when the disciples later go, look, that tree that you cursed, I mean, that thing, it's withered all the way to its root. It completely died overnight. So we have this place where the Jews are supposed to be bearing fruit. They were supposed to be the light bearers. They were, from the very beginning, they were intended to be the ones that take the gospel and the fruit of the gospel and bring it and give it away to everybody around them. But they had failed in their assignment. They had failed in being the the vocation, of taking the vocation that they had been offered by him. They, uh, multiple times, we won't go into that right now, but he, they had failed at it. And now he comes to this fig tree and he goes, I, in my view, he's looking at that fig tree and saying, The same thing that you did in your beginning, you covered yourself and produced no fruit. And what does this tree represent? It still represents a tree that will grow leaves. It'll have an outward look, but it has no abundance of fruit. 
And so I curse you. You'll never bear fruit again. And later there's the verse that says the axe is, Jesus says, the axe is already laid to the root. What was about to happen, the axe has already been laid to the root. The assignment that Israel had neglected was now about to become the assignment to the whole world. And never again will this tree or this nation bear the fruit of the vocation it was supposed to have but but refused to take, that vocation has now been given to the whole world so that whosoever will may come, that every man can call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. No longer are you limited. Now the kingdom is expanding. Everybody okay? You can do whatever you want with that story, but I'm sure I'm right. One more, one more story, and then it's, just, it's in this whole, there's th- certain things that all happen right behind each other. Um, and I'll, One more story, and then I'll quit. And they came to, to Jerusalem, and they entered the temple, and, they, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying, Is it not written, My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. In one of the other gospel stories, it talks about a whip, this, this place in the temple where, where this story takes place, it was in the court of the Gentiles. The temple, when God gave how the temple was to be built, he also designed, in the temple design, the court of the Gentiles. What was the purpose of the court of the Gentiles? As a Gentile, I can come to temple not being a Jew, not having the full liberty to come into the temple like every other Jew, but God so wanted everyone to know him, to hear his voice, to have relationship, that he designed the court of the Gentiles where I could come into that court. I could hear the songs of the temple. I could hear the voice that was being proclaimed in the temple. I could have an encounter with Yahweh in his temple. And so that's amazing to me because God's, oh, God's heart has always been everyone. The Jew carried the oracles of God, not because God only wanted to deal with the Jews. No, they carried the oracles because they were supposed to be the voice of Yahweh on the earth. They were supposed to be the nation where the voice of Yahweh is actually heard. No other nation has that. Every other nation had their idols, but their idols are silent. They're just idols. In Israel, the voice of the living God could be heard. His manifest presence, the pillar of fire, the smoke, 
the temple being filled with his presence, the ongoing things of Yahweh manifesting himself with a people, that was supposed to be the example for the whole world. I don't want to just do this with the Jews. They're going to tell you how to come to me, and then you come to me, and when you come to me, I'm with you. My goal is for you to come. That's always been his plan. So here we have this place, even in Second Temple. This is kind of amazing to me. Even Herod somehow got it right <laughs> and built a court of the Gentiles. But then what happened? It was made the place where the buying and selling took place. So if I'm coming into temple and I need my sacrifice, whatever my sacrifice is, where do I go? I go into the court of the Gentiles. But there's no Gentiles in there. There's just other Jews who sell, exchange money, because if I'm coming from another country, I've got the currency of that country, so I got to go to the money changer and get ripped off there, and then I get, I get my shekel, and I bring that over, and I pay for my sacrifice, so now I can take it into the temple. Now, it says he turned over the, the, the table of the pigeons, right? Well, there was more in that place than a couple bird cages. All the sacrifices needed could be bought there, which means there were cattle there. So when it, the scripture does not say Jesus took a whip and began to flog people with the whip. He took the whip and he began to drive them out, them being more than the people, them also being the animals. Because now we have this court that was designed by Yahweh to be the court of the Gentiles where I could come in and have access to his presence. But instead, it's now a place that's filled with animals. It's filled with excrement. It's filled with people buying and selling that have make it impossible for me as a Gentile to experience Yahweh in his temple kind of reminds me of everybody's crowding the door to hear what Jesus is saying. We all wanted this new novelty in town. Let's all get there and listen. And you got this sick person, and the only thing his friends could do was, let's go up on the roof. We'll just take the roof off. Because we can't get to Jesus because everybody that's gawking is blocking the way. So we'll take the roof off. We'll just let him down. And what happened when they get to Jesus? They got healed. Yeah. And he didn't get mad because he took the roof off. Yeah. So here is this, I mean, for me, it's this amazing picture of the goodness and the mercy of God, of Yahweh, that in his description and building, it was always intended for people to be able to come to always come. And he hasn't changed. That's still what it is today. Whosoever will may come. Again, atonement. What are we talking about with atonement? We're talking about the covenant with Abraham so that Abrahamic covenant coming in and still being present. God said to Abram, in you, all the nations will be blessed. 
Messiah comes, comes on Passover, what's the purpose? That in him, all the nations would be blessed. And to Satan, you may bruise his heel, but he'll crush your head. Because when Messiah steps on the scene, your power has been broken. So I think I'm gonna just stop there for today. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you, Lord, that you're, you're, uh, the great grace that you pour out and have poured out. I thank you, Jesus, for the finished work of the cross and all that it represents. Father, I ask that we, we, we grow in our understanding of who you are and how incredible this story is, how incredible the advancement of your kingdom is how incredible your love is. Help us to, not just to comprehend it in our minds, but Lord, let this be something that, that, that transforms our hearts. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.